Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. An individual who finds himself in a severe depressed state, I wouldn't want them to think that this is purely as a result of a deficit of religiosity. Mm. But conversely, we know that those societies where religiosity is more prominent, uh, anxiety and depression seem to be uh, less uh, of a problem compared to societies uh, that I would you know, say are, are secular uh, and, and where religiosity is not mm. present. And there are, there are many reasons for that. Um, so I, I saw an interesting study by some Muslim clinicians uh, uh, from the States, mm. um, and they found that actually the ability of people to tolerate uncertainty um, was actually a good predictor of uh, having less anxiety and less depression. Right. So the more uncertainty that you can tolerate, mm. um, the less likely you were to become depressed or anxious. Mm. Uh, and I think that's something interesting because we know that many of the concepts which are actually fundamental uh, to Islam actually help you a great deal with dealing with uncertainty. Dr. Imran Wahid, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to The Thinking Muslim. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Well, Jazakallah khair for returning to our show. Um, there's a lot to discuss about mental health today and uh, I've received a lot of questions from our audience about mental health and uh, about conditions that they would like to, to raise with you. For those of our viewers that haven't listened to a previous show we had, I think it was some years back, maybe two years back, Imran, I would... Uh, Highly recommend that show to accompany today's session. I will put the uh, link in the show notes. Now, I want to explore uh, mental health today, as I said, and um, your website talks about your interests, and it, it suggests that your interests range from mood disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorders, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and psychosis. But I'm right in saying that your day job in Birmingham is really to, to look at the most acute uh, psychiatric cases or episodes. So on the spectrum, I mean, if you were to paint the spectrum of mental health concerns, 
I suppose acute psycho psych, psychiatric episodes would be at one end. You know, explain that spectrum to me. So, in essence, uh, my work involves seeing and assessing and treating people who have severe and enduring mental illness. So people who are on the, the most severe end right. of the spectrum in terms of uh, mental illness mm. uh, and mental health problems, mm. um, particularly conditions like schizophrenia, psychosis, serious mood disorders mm. uh, like uh, bipolar disorder, severe depression. Yeah, um, Those are the kind of conditions that I, I regularly assess and treat uh, in my day-to-day -day clinical work. Um, of course, I come across a wide array of other problems, uh, for example, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, um, and milder conditions, milder versions of anxiety, and other psychiatric uh, conditions, personality disorders, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder. So sometimes it is useful to see things, and I think when we met last, we talked about the spectrum. Yes. Um, between kind of... Uh, illness and disease. And, and this is something that the whole of medicine grapples with. How do you define uh, what is pathology? Uh, how do you define what is a disease or what is an illness? How do you distinguish that uh, from you know, what is considered to be, for want of a better term, normal? Um, so, for example, if you looked at the issue of blood pressure, mm. uh, you might say that there's a range of blood pressures which are normal, mm. and then there's a range where the blood pressure would be low, and then a range where the blood pressure is high. Mm. And similarly, you know, if you look to things like mood, psychiatrists may consider that there's a range of mood. Mm -hmm. There's a range of mood that is normal, mm. uh, a range of mood that is low and depressed, mm. and a range of mood that is elevated and elated. Mm. Um, and it's about where do you draw those lines. And, and, and of course, in psychiatry, uh, sometimes that can be more uh, subjective uh, than, for example, a blood pressure reading or a blood glucose reading. Mm. There's no blood test as such for some of these things. You know, as well as I do, that there are many Muslims who argue that uh, mental disorders such as anxiety, uh, such as depression, are really a result of a lack of iman or a weakness of some fundamental Islamic ideas or spiritual well-being, for example. So they suggest that the treatment for these types of illnesses will be to reconnect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an and uh, as we know, the Quran is a cure, a shifa for all illnesses or all ailments. What's your thoughts on, on this type of understanding? Well, I think I'd start by saying it's probably too simplistic. Hmm. And, you know, to expand on that, what I mean is this, because what, what are they talking about here? What end of that spectrum are they talking about addressing with, uh, with this approach? Hmm. Um, so I suspect if somebody had some low-level distress... Yeah. Um, some difficulty coping uh, with day-to-day -day life, but it wasn't of the level of a severe mental illness or a severe mental disorder, yeah. uh, then perhaps uh, some of the things that they suggest would be helpful. Mm. Um, but I mean, if we look at this itself, it's quite complex. Um, I, I don't think one could say that uh, the issue is simply due to a lack of iman, mm. because, I mean, of course there are, you know, the, the non-Muslims, they lack Iman. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that we see vast swathes of them suffering from these conditions. Yeah. So one would expect that if Iman was a, a solely protective factor, one would expect that anybody without Iman uh, would be very, very susceptible to these conditions. But we see that actually, you know, from, 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 from numerous studies that have been done, these conditions seem to affect 
men, women, Muslims, non-Muslims, yeah. uh, and from amongst the Muslims, people with varying levels of conviction and strength and, and courage and uh, various degrees of tawakkul in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah. So it, it doesn't really, this, this argument doesn't really uh, carry a great deal of weight as far as I'm concerned. It's probably better to look at the individual circumstances of an individual. Um, and none of that is to detract from what these people say. I, I don't think that uh, what they say about the, the benefits of reading the Quran and the, the power of dua and reconnecting with Allah, I, I don't think that those things are without benefit. Absolutely, they are with benefit. Uh, but they will tend to benefit people across the spectrum. Um, but I think those people whose illnesses are at the more severe end of the spectrum uh, may need uh, other forms of uh, treatment and support uh, than uh, these things alone. So let's talk about those at the, the, the start of the spectrum, those who've got mild to mid-range uh, mental illnesses. I mean, would you say that um, those who connect to their deen better or have got stronger connections with Islam would be less likely to be affected by anxiety and stress and discontentment that may exist in the world around us? There is some uh, there is some evidence around that research evidence, not only related to Islam, but mm. looking at religions in general. Right. So we, we do know that religiosity, um, generally the research evidence indicates that it, it tends to have a protective effect in terms of anxiety and depression. And, and this is when you look at, uh, maybe when you, when, when you look at whole societies or communities rather than just an individual. Mm. So the, 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 the reason to raise this is that an individual who finds themselves in a severe depressed state, I wouldn't want them to think that this is purely as a result of a deficit of religiosity. Mm. But conversely, we know that those societies where religiosity is more prominent, uh, anxiety and depression seem to be uh, less uh, of a problem compared to societies uh, that I would you know, say are, are secular uh, and, and where religiosity is not mm. present. And there are, there are many reasons for that. Um, so I, I saw an interesting study by some Muslim clinicians uh, uh, from the States, mm. um, and they found that actually the ability of people to tolerate uncertainty um, was actually a good predictor of uh, having less anxiety and less depression. Right. So the more uncertainty that you can tolerate, mm. um, the less likely you were to become depressed or anxious. Mm. Uh, and I think that's something interesting because we know that many of the concepts which are actually fundamental uh, to Islam actually help you a great deal with dealing with uncertainty. Um, so, for example, the concept of qadar, of fate. Uh, we've seen recently the events in Turkey and Syria, and we see that a lot of Muslims are able to draw on their understanding of qadar and fate and not being the ones who are in absolute control of this universe. Mm. Uh, and we are... You know, through things like that, even things like, you know, the COVID pandemic, we are reminded of the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and actually the weakness of man. Mm. So you have those kind of tools, the tools that uh, the things which are uncertain in life, like how much you're going to earn. Yes. These things actually Islam assured you that, you know, your rizq, your sustenance is something which has been predetermined. Yes. Your ajal, your lifespan is something which has been predetermined. So actually Islam gives you the tools to deal with a lot of uncertainty, and we know that that can be very, very helpful. Right, so Ajal, for example, knowing that you have a limited lifespan or knowing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you risk, 
these concepts impact on the way you treat uncertainty or the way you deal with uncertainty, right? Now, even after that, imagine if someone has perfect understanding of these ideas, uh, can they be assured that they wouldn't feel a level of anxiety, even a deep level of anxiety or stress uh, as a result of, say, monetary issues or issues to do with the death of a loved one, for example? No, I, I don't think it gives you an assurance. So, yeah. I mean, we know the, the prophets uh, of Allah, uh, may Allah be pleased with them, they were the ones who had the most perfect iman. Yes. And if you look at, uh, for example, the story of Yaqub, who uh, became filled with sorrow, sorrow and grief uh, at the absence of his son Yusuf, yeah. to the extent uh, that uh, he lost his sight. Yes. Uh, so he had a, a great deal of sadness uh, which has uh, even affected him physically. This mm. is what is indicated in the text. Mm. Uh, and even the Messenger of Allah sallam, has had many periods of sadness. Not that they have entered, uh, from what we can tell, into any uh, you know period of full-blown depression. Mm. But what I'm saying is that sadness and grief, um, these are people who had the highest level iman. They were still uh, affected by the death of a loved one. Yes. Um, so... Actually, we, what we don't want to fall into is kind of pathologizing uh, and medicalizing what is part of normal human experience. Right. Uh, so, for example, the death of a loved one or, or dealing with yeah. uh, suffering or, or stressful situation. We know that uh, these things actually have been dealt with by many people. Mm. And, and it's not usually very helpful uh, to diagnose these as a, as a mental illness. Well, on that subject, then, um, the term mental health covers a range of challenges that we as human beings may have. And do you feel that uh, society today is too quick to label all human conditions under this umbrella term of mental health? I think it's really interesting. I mean, people talk about raising mental health awareness. And I remember the, the former president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, he said, well, actually, my heart sinks when I hear about mental health awareness. Really? Yeah, because the, the point was, he, I mean, and, and they went to point out studies of the National Union of Students said that they found in a study that 78% of students were depressed. Wow. And, and this was the kind of president of the Royal College of Psychiatry saying, well, I, I just can't believe that. I don't believe 78% of why? students are why, depressed. Why can't he believe that? Just because we know that from studying the condition, the prevalence of the condition is not 78%. Right. You know, so if there's, you know, there's huge studies which have been done over many, many years in many different countries. And, and so people will be critical. People will say, you know, maybe the prevalence of depression might be, you know, between 3 and 5% in any given population. Sure. Yet in some societies, like in the States, 11% of the population, the adult population, are on antidepressants. Wow. So... There may be a combination of things. There may be actually people who have very, very serious mental illness, mm. like schizophrenia, which doesn't go, you know, doesn't get diagnosed. Mm. And probably there's a lack of awareness there. Mm. But then there are lots of other people on the milder end of the spectrum who are now saying that they are distressed and upset yes. and that they have a mental health problem. Mm. And the question is, is there a danger that, that at that end of the spectrum, people who are upset, uh, people who are distressed, uh, maybe because of their circumstances, uh, maybe because of life events, um, that that is kind of patho uh, uh, that is medicalized or you know uh, made into a disease condition. So, I think yeah, we are dealing with large numbers of people who have mental illness. I, do, I, do, I don't think that that is not the case, but I think there is a danger that 
a lot of normal human experience uh, is passed off as mental illness. But this is sadness that people may feel, even prolonged sadness. For example, students, did you say 78% of students say they're depressed? This was a study, yeah, by the NUS, yeah. Wow. So, you know, are you saying that they're misunderstanding what is just a human condition of sadness and feeling anxiety prior to an exam, for example, which lots of students I would imagine would do. I mean, I I haven't studied it, but I suspect that's what it is. I can't believe that if I I just don't think it's rational that 78%, you know, so the overwhelming majority of students have depression, have a, you know, have a serious mental illness. I I can't accept that. But I think the challenge, of course, the challenge in psychiatry Hmm. is to distinguish, you know, what is, uh, what is sadness and what is depression? Uh, What is eccentricity and what is, what is autism? What is shyness and what is social phobia? Yeah. So there's a there's a need to which goes back really to this spectrum discussion we had earlier, yeah. which is how do you decide whether something is pathological, um, and and really what is the point of deciding that something is pathological? Because when you when you say that somebody has an illness, you are actually giving them a license to enter into the role of a patient, the role of what we call the sick role. Yes. Maybe they're absolved of certain responsibilities that society places on people, yeah. whether those are family responsibilities, whether those are work responsibilities or community responsibilities. Yeah. And the problem you have, of course, is if you have 78% of your population who have an illness, how does your society function? Mm. Because if you're saying that 78% have this condition, uh, and a condition generally one diagnoses a condition because mm. one decides that the person is... Uh, worthy or needy of some sort of treatment. So you're going to be treating the vast majority of people for what may well be a normal part of human experience. And that, of course, is very dangerous. Does Islam, in its texts, in its books of classical uh, scholarship, does Islam um, refer to mental health in any shape or form? Does the Quran talk about mental health? I think, uh, I mean, there, there are references one could make and, you know, linkages one could make. Hmm. But I, I don't think fundamentally the, the Quran or, you know, any of the texts, that hadith, I mean, they have not come specifically to address mental health. Right. They've not come specifically with some form of cognitive therapy or yeah. with some medicinal treatment uh, to treat depression. I, I don't think that uh, the deen, that, that its purpose of revelation is to address all of these issues in that way. Having said that, though, the principles and, and the, the whole nature of the, of, the, of the Islamic Sharia is to try and bring about within the individual, mm. but also within the society. And I think this is an important point, mm. uh, because actually the whole of capitalism focuses a lot on the individual. Yes. All the solutions are individualistic. You're depressed. You're sad. Uh, you need to go and get therapy. Mm. You need to take an antidepressant. Yes. Uh, you need to change your lifestyle. You need to take more exercise. Mm. It never looks at the society, uh, the vessel uh, in which uh, a person is in. Yeah. But I mean, your your question really is about whether Islam can address any of these issues. Yes, I mean, Islam um, suggests that there are many of its rules which bring about tranquility. For example, marriage. Right. Islam will say that this is one of the ways to bring about tranquility. Mm. Um, Islam will talk, uh, you know, the, the, the Quran mentions that whoever turns away from the dhikr of Allah will have a miserable existence. Yeah. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses the messenger of Allah saying that we have not revealed this to you to be a source of anguish. Mm. Um, so in general terms, the Quran, the scripture, the revelation has been... Uh, you know, is is meant to comfort, 
uh, and uh, is, is meant to provide some sense of well-being to the Muslims. Um, it's not meant to be uh, bringing with it hardship. Uh, but no, I don't think it contains any specific treatments, for example. What about um, the Hukum Shari'i talks about uh, the person who's, the pe- who the pen is lifted from? So that person who has got such severe mental illness that they're incapacitated and so the salah or the fasting will no longer be obliged upon them. Where, where does that rule come from? Well, I mean, that rule in particular, it, it comes from a hadith of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam where, and, and this is ultimately to do with legal responsibility. Yes. And any system of jurisprudence, even the, the Western systems of jurisprudence, they will consider who is the person who is legally responsible. Right. They may look at things like age, they may look at mental state, they may look at whether somebody was intoxicated with a substance. Mm. Um, so the, the hadith uh, mentions that the pen is lifted from three, the pen recording actions mm. is lifted from three. Yes. And one of those is the one who is mentally ill. Mm. Um, and the others are the one who is asleep until he wakes yes. and the child until he reaches adulthood. Yes. So, yeah, we are, we are being told here, actually, and, and this is very good because this was, you know, something from 1400 years ago. And, and I think the, the courts are still struggling in the West to deal with mentally uh, ill offenders and how to deal with them. Right. Whereas Islam actually said a principle 1400 years ago that the one who's mentally ill is not accountable for his, ac- his or her actions. Yeah. Um, so that is something that we do know. But what type of mental illness is this, right? So what, what, what is the, how did the scholars define it? I mean, you know, we're not saying here the one who has anxiety or has an OCD trait or, uh, you know, as narcissistic, has a narcissistic personality, right? You know, these people still have responsibility over their actions. I think the, the principle comes down to establishing the reality of what, the, what effect the condition has on the individual's ability to think right. and what effect it has on the ability of the individual to act. Right. So if the individual still retains some degree of culpability, and this would require, in most cases, one would assume that an individual is culpable. That would probably be the original starting position. Yes. That if you're adult, uh, you are considered to be culpable for your actions uh, you know so the onus would you know you would have to prove uh, you know someone would have to prove a qadi would have to take evidence mm. uh, to establish that somebody is not culpable for their actions and that mm. may require expert evidence um, and you know really what you'd be looking at is so for example um, if somebody had um, let's say somebody cut someone's throat but actually they were hallucinating and they thought it was a loaf of bread. Hmm. Uh, if that could be proven, and that was an expert assessment, then one would argue that the pen is lifted from that individual. Right. If somebody had a command hallucination to do something, they were commanded by you know, a voice which they could not resist. Yeah. Uh, this is something which could affect them a great deal. If somebody had a very severe type of obsessive compulsive disorder, yeah. um, uh, for example, I have seen people in my own practice where they had severe issues around tahara, mm. and actually they spent so long getting ready to pray that they missed the prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly in those cases, I know that scholars have told those individuals that they were not accountable right. for missing the prayer because they had a severe mental illness which was impairing their ability to prepare themselves to pray on time. I mean, apart from medication, how would you treat someone like that who finds it very difficult to do wudu and, as you said, may spend hours uh, on tahara and will miss the salah. I mean, what's your, how do you treat something like that? Yeah. Well, 
I mean, if if it's obsessive compulsive disorder, yeah, um, which is usually a condition characterized by intrusive thoughts, intrusive thoughts where there's cognitive dissonance. So you get these thoughts which keep on intruding into your head, right? Which you actually dislike a great deal, mm. and they they make you feel quite unhappy. Yeah. And most of the time you realize they're completely senseless, but you just can't stop them coming into your head. Yeah. The other feature we see in this condition is rituals or compulsions. People feel compelled to undertake a particular action, mm. which if they don't undertake that action, they feel a, a sense of intense anxiety. Mm. So, I mean, the treatments which are available for this condition, um, you know, again, if it's something which is having a major effect on function, yes. having uh, doubts, uh, you know, ruminations. These are could be a part of normal human experience. Yeah. Uh, everybody could have doubts from time to time. Yeah. Everybody could think, you know, have I have I locked the front door? Have I left the oven on? You know, uh, ha, you know, how, did I do such and such? Hmm. Uh, even in the prayer, you could have a doubt: which rakat you are on, or um, you know, have you got wudu? Have you not got wudu? Yeah. Um, so we are not talking about that. We are talking about when the issue becomes so severe that it intrudes into one's day-to-day life and one cannot get rid of these thoughts. Yes. So the treatment in that particular case, there are different treatments. So there are there is what's known generally as therapy, and there are different types of therapy for obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah. Um, there is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, and there are other things called exposure response prevention. Mm. These are the types of therapy which are kind of well-known uh, in 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 kind of in in terms of the realm of psychological therapy for dealing with these conditions, um, usually, I mean, those who write on these topics and who have an interest in it suggest that if you've got a, an issue, for example, around some of the aspects of the Islamic ibadat or mm. Islamic uh, purification or even the Islamic aqidah, mm. that your intrusive thoughts are around these things, that it's best to work with a therapist who has knowledge of these things. Right. I come I came across a case where you know somebody who uh, had a therapist, um, an, a non-Muslim therapist, and they went to them with these problems. And uh, he, he just said, well, just stop praying. Your problem will be fixed. <laughs> so so that's why, I mean, anybody, I would suggest that, you know, if, you've got, if you're really struggling with these issues, really you want to find somebody who's got an understanding of the therapy yeah. uh, and an understanding of why these things are bothering you such a great deal. Um, but really what we're talking about here is religious doubts. Yes. And they're not only specific, actually. So in my practice, I don't only see them amongst Muslims. I see them amongst other people who follow other religions, yeah. um, that they develop very, very similar things. For example, developing intrusive blasphemous thoughts, mm. uh, which keep on intruding on them. So, And then the other thing, of course, is sometimes to, 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 to reach out to people, to scholars, to an imam, who has some understanding of the area as well, and understands the difficulties and may be able to give you advice uh, for example, from the Sunnah about how you could deal uh, with some of these things. Wasn't there an ayat of Quran when the Sahaba came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, you know, we have these thoughts and, and some of them are, you know, maybe beyond uh, Islamic remits, right? And um, the ayat of Quran was revealed, لا الله نفساً إلا yeah, you know, Allah will not burden a soul more than it can bear. Um, so, from that, at least my understanding from that is you're not accountable for your thoughts. And so, in a way, that gives you the ability to move beyond those thoughts, right? Because you've now conceptualized that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to question me about these. Um, does that help in any way for a Muslim to, or am I being too 
simplistic here when it comes to the types of people you meet? Yeah. I think, you know, what is yet to develop is a kind of form of Islamic psychotherapy right? Um, where you can incorporate this. So there are some Muslim therapists mm. uh, and, and there are people who, you know, there are, there are courses now in Islamic psychotherapy mm. um, and they will be trying to use these in programs of therapy. Yeah. Because, of course, you know, Muslims have great attachment uh, and love for the Quran and for the Hadith. So these things are important. So, you know, if, if people can see that this is mentioned in the Qur'an or there's a hadith which talks about intrusive thoughts, and there are, hmm. there are, there are uh, narrations where some of the Sahaba, may Allah be pleased with them, have gone to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and told them that, you know, look, we are experiencing really, really bad thoughts, which we absolutely hate these thoughts. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to, you know, we don't even want to speak about them. Mm-hmm. And the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, uh, when they went to him, he didn't kind of uh, admonish them. Uh, but he kind of reminded them of the fact that they were not accountable merely for having these thoughts. Mm. And he reminded them to be grateful uh, that actually this was the maximum that shaitan was capable of. That the maximum that shaitan was capable of was whispering uh, to mankind and nothing more than that. Yeah. But I think in one sense it's helpful, what you mentioned, these narrations. Yes. But in the other sense it could be simplistic. Mm. Because you know you could get some guy who thinks that he can fix everybody with OCD by telling them, you know, a couple of ayahs of Quran and Hadith. Mm. When actually the, most of the people I've met who have got this problem, they've heard of these ayat and they've heard of these Hadith. And probably what you need to do is have a structured program of therapy where you incorporate these ayah and Hadith into it. Now, you made reference earlier to capitalism and the ills of the broader society. I mean, I came across an article in the Atlantic magazine Uh, the other day, and it mentioned that six in ten teenage girls in the United States say that they're persistently sad or hopeless, and and the share of girls who say they've contemplated suicide increased 50% in this last decade. I mean, that's shocking to me. Uh, What's going on here? I mean, are we becoming a more ill society, and why? I think uh, what you're talking about here is a long-term trend. Hmm. Uh, I think... um, there are people who will trace this uh, as the author. I, I've seen the article you're referring right. to. Uh, the author and, and many authors, you know, lament the decline of society. And they'll write these articles about how people are on their phones and they're not climbing up a tree. <laughs> uh, or, you know, they're, they're not enjoying the outdoors or they don't know how to, you know, they'll talk about health and safety and, you know, people are not going camping and making a fire yeah. Uh, and learning how to do things like that because yeah. there's you know there's too many rules about those type of things yeah but i think it actually predates all of that mm. i think actually when you when you go back and look at this um so- society this kind of sadness rather than depression mm. uh, this unhappiness this um feeling of you know being in- incomplete this lack of tranquility um, which is probably being reflected in these studies, what mm. people are talking about, that they feel suicidal and unhappy and yeah. they've got no real purpose. I mean, I think this is all, you can link this back to the predominant economic philosophy, right. uh, the capitalist you know, the capitalist philosophy yeah. and the, the effect that that has had over a number of years. So even, I think even if you go as far back as the Reagan years or the Thatcher years, um, the neoliberal kind of economic policy yeah. and the individualism it's fostered, the materialism, the selfishness, the greed, uh, all of these kind of traits uh, which have arisen. Um, 
And then the desire, the desire for perfection, the desire to almost live in paradise on earth, the right. desire to have, uh, you know, no suffering, the desire to have, um, uh, to expect happiness, the quick fix culture. Yeah. Uh, all of this ultimately, uh, I think, arises from that viewpoint on life. And I think this is really important here, and this is where the Muslims really need to think about what they have to offer the world. Right. Because purpose of life is your anchor in the world. Mm. And we, we know from the research that purpose of life is, is really, really important. Um, and it actually predicts, uh, it's predictive of, there's a correlation between purpose of life and depression and anxiety mm. uh, or sadness. Um, so we know that the societies where there's you know no real understanding of the purpose of life, um, they tend to have more anxiety, more sadness. Whereas those societies where actually they are focused on the purpose of life, uh, which we have as Muslims, that the purpose of life is the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah. So that actually gives you a very clear steer. It gives you a real clear compass. And we meet so many people in day-to-day -day life. They don't have any compass. They don't know where they've come from. They don't know where they're going. Yeah. And they can't actually answer the fundamental questions of life. And then when they come across, uh, you know, a, a bump in the road, they really struggle. They really don't know where to turn to. So I think that, I mean, I lay a lot of the blame at the door of the predominant way of life, the predominant ideology, the economic system and the effect that it's had. Yeah. Um, and we could, we could talk about many of those things, the inequality, for example, mm. uh, the focus on the individual, the focus on the, the culture of uh, having things. Yeah. Um, and owning things, uh, the keeping up with the Joneses. And yes, in recent years, I think social media has made that much, much worse. Right. Because you can see everybody else's life being played out in front of you. Uh, you can see what people have and you, you come to the conclusion that actually, oh, people are really, really happy. People have got things mm. and you don't have a great deal and you don't have their happiness. I mean, the author of this article laid out four reasons why he believed, and we can contest this, but he believed that at least the problem has become more acute or more worse. He argued that the rise of social media and phone use, as you said, was, was one reason. The decline in sociality, uh, time with friends, you know, the bowling alone phenomenon, which has been uh, talked about in the United States. This was the phenomenon of young men who'd go to bowling, which is a very social activity on their own. Um, and, and that talked to the lack of friendship and a lack of sociality within society. He talked about changes in parenting. And I suppose what he meant by that was a more individualistic parent, or at least a parenting that doesn't con continue the types of traditional norms that one may have picked up from previous generations. And, um, and more, free and, uh, more fear and anxiety about the world. And I've noticed that with students I've taught, um, you know, in particular, environmental issues. Um, there are some students who are so um, uh, taken over by uh, environmental concerns that they can almost they can't even write an essay uh, because they're worried that the world is going to end in you know in a few years' time. Right? Um, do you believe any of these um, remedies or these these uh, this analysis uh, explains uh, the problem of? in particular, teenage depression or teenage sadness? I think, uh, I think that, I mean, the, the author is really, he hasn't identified root causes here. Right. And, and this is typical of the majority of discourse uh, which occurs in these subjects. Mm. They, they don't look 
for the root cause. They look to individuals. Yes. Uh, but actually, the author does more than just that. I, okay. I, I would accept that. So he talks about the family, parenting. Yeah. He talks about the society. Yeah. Uh, to some degree, that there's, you know, there's a decline in social interaction. Yeah. I think these things are features. Yeah. But what do they arise from? Uh, all of these things, I, I, I would argue that they arise from individualism and materialism. Right. And these are these are strong characteristics or traits of capitalism, the secular liberal way of life. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. Yeah. Nobody nobody equates uh, individualism um, or materialism with Islam. Nobody. Mm. When you talk about individualism and materialism, yeah. actually, no religion comes to mind. Yeah. People generally think that if people believe in a religion, they believe in, you know, in a higher being, in a in a purpose beyond their immediate needs, you know. Mm. They, they these people are people who would do things for something other than a a materialistic value. Yeah. Um but actually when you think of, you know, when when you think of um the uh the the the, the capitalist uh you know, the the, the capitalist ideology and mm. and what it has created. Mm. It has created this kind of uh, desire to accumulate more and more capital. It has created a huge degree of inequality, and it has created the the cult of the individual. Um, so it it kind of celebrates the individual. Mm. Uh, it uh, tries to uh, you know put the individual on a throne, and when it comes to fixing problems, it tries to make the individual the starting point of fixing the problem, and that's actually something uh, alien uh, to Islam, this idea of uh, the individual. So actually many of the obligations in Islam, yeah, they're they're obligations on individuals. But Islam actually had this other set of obligations, what we know as farda kifaya. So we actually have a a whole swathe of obligations which are actually not, you're actually addressed as an entire community, as an entire ummah, that this is an obligation on all of you. Um, And fine, if some of you complete it, the sin will be lifted off all of you, but actually it encourages you to do things in conjunction with others. Mm. And in fact, a lot of the, the great aspects of Islam, uh, whether it be the masajid, whether it be Ramadan, whether it be Hajj, whether it be Zakat, uh, whether it be the festivals of Eid al-Fitr and Eid al-Adha, they're all collective. Mm. They're not considered uh, you know, to be uh, small individualistic affairs where, which are done on a family level. Mm. And and even if we look at the 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 hadith which reflect this as well, right. the hadith, for example, talking about the 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 simile between the ummah and one body, then if one part of the body is afflicted with pain, the whole body feels it. Yeah. The hadith is safina, talking about the, the 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 people as if they are you know if if the people are on a ship, mm. and the people on the ship allow the people on the lower deck to drill a hole. Mm. And the whole ship sinks, and the people on the top mm. don't stop them from doing that. Uh, that that would be a problem. So again, the, the 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 point here is, I think the author is looking at something. He's not looking deep enough. Mm. I think there's a deeper problem, and what he's focusing on is actually some of the symptoms of this deeper problem. So your argument is that an Islamic society would ultimately give you the tools to live a better life, a life where you're on average, much more happy than these individualistic societies. I mean, unpack that for me. Paint a picture of what the types of what are the types of issues or values that an Islamic society would would target within within that community. 
Well, we see we see people do things for a variety of motivations, right? Um, and we can see that in our own human experience. Mm. We see there are people who uh, will do things for a materialistic aim. They're looking to make profit, mm. um, and uh, and and that uh, just just so it's very clear yeah. is something which could be entirely permissible. Yes, uh, you know, for an individual to uh, to sell something halal. In order to make a profit, of course, it's something entirely permissible. Uh, somebody could do something for a humanitarian value. You know, to they could go, as we have seen Muslims go to the earthquake zones in Turkey and Syria. They don't go for any monetary value, but they go purely uh, to assist people. Mm. We see other things that people try and do uh, in terms of the actions uh, that they do. We see p- people's uh, spiritual actions, for example, their ibadat, mm. which they are purely looking at their relationship between them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm. Now, the point I'm making is that left to his own devices, when you don't have, you know, وَمَا حَلَقْتَ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَى لِيَعْبَدُونَ as your anchor, mm. that we only created mankind and jinn mm. to worship me. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying. Mm. If that's not your anchor, then actually you will find that you may end up just seeking one of these things. Right. So an individual who runs from the materialistic world will be a guy who just seeks solace in the masjid, but doesn't do anything outside in the society. Mm. Um, but similarly, what we see, the, the vast majority of people are people who are running towards the material, mm. towards the profit. And that, and that is what we have seen really uh, in the kind of the secular West. Mm. Um, and also, you know, we, we see this increasingly, unfortunately, in the Muslim world, that people are running towards what we call the materialistic value. Mm. So how do you put all of these things in balance? That's yes. the question. So that's yes. the question you're asking. Yes. Well, you've got to have a, a, a society. You've got to have a system, a system of laws. You've got to have uh, the entirety of the ahkam sharia because actually when you look at the entirety of the ahkam sharia, uh, they make it, they, they put all of these things in complete balance. Right. Um, you know, they, so, you know, the, for example, look at the ayats about, uh, in, from Surah Jummah. The, you know, when the time of Salah comes on the day of Jummah, then you leave your trade mm. and you go, you hasten to the remembrance of Allah. Mm. So this is actually showing you the balance. It's not telling you you've got to close down completely on a Friday. Yes. It's saying, you know, when you hear the call to prayer on a Friday, hasten to the dhikr of Allah. Mm. And after that, fantashiru fil ard, then disperse on the earth after you have. So, you know, and even many of the ayahs of Quran, which mention that, you know, seek the hereafter but don't neglect your, por- your portion of this world. So actually when you look at the entirety of the ahkam of Islam, yes. when applied as a system in a society, you will see people seeking in their lives every single value, the moral value, the humanitarian value, the spiritual value, and yes, the materialistic value. But it will not be allowed, the, the, the seeking of the materialistic value will not be allowed just to be something which occurs without the rest of these values. Mm. And it actually, it's the rules of Islam which uh, allow that to happen and that balance. Mm. And that ultimately comes back to our belief that we are created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you accept that you are created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you have to accept that his ahkam and his system is the best way to organize the human behavior. Mm. And the outcome of that, yes. I, I firmly believe the outcome of that would be a more happy, a more tranquil, a more fulfilled society. You've traveled to many countries, I would imagine, uh, Dr. Imran. You've traveled to the East, Muslim and non-Muslim countries. 
Um, do you feel that, by and large, and of course we can't make uh, too many generalizations here, but by and large, people in those countries are far more happier, even if they've got less material means than those who you experience, those people you come across here in, in say, Britain? Absolutely. Right. And that's not only, you know, my own personal experience. I mean, there's even research evidence as well. Really? Which suggests that the societies where there's not this huge disparity mm. between rich and poor mm. uh, that we see in the, in the capitalist societies, I'm not saying that disparity is not there uh, in, 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 in the East. It is. But some of the countries where it is there to a lesser extent, yeah. uh, we see that people do feel happier. Um, and yeah, my, my own personal experience, it is the case that you come across people uh, who are poor and have not got the same issues, mm. the same unhappiness with life, that's the same distress yeah. um, that you sometimes see even amongst the rich. You don't see that. Yeah. So to live a rounded life, your argument is that um, Islam gives you a sense of perspective. So the discussion we had at the very beginning that uh, it through the ideas of ajal and rizq and and vis and tawakkul of Allah subhanahu wa taala in Allah subhanahu wa taala we uh, we uh, set up a, an intellectual arrangement in our minds that gives us a, a sense of it allows us to deal with the unknown much better sometimes than those who uh, who have uh, no way of dealing with uncertainty. But also Islamic society gives you a sense of perspective. So you go to the mosque and you fast, but also you uh, trade and uh, you uh, engage in humanitarian work and and these things all come together to build a sense of happiness within or contentment within an individual and i i I can see that um, I do also see however that capitalist societies make you rich right people here uh by and large are able to obtain wealth, and the argument goes that poorer people notwithstanding everything that you've said, poorer people uh, are going to have many more anxieties in their life, many more periods of sadness, because they can't. And we're not talking about materialism here in the sort of, you know, uh, they've not been able to get the, the latest iPhone. They just can't, they don't have the basic qualities of life uh, that allow them to, to, to live a, you know, a, a comfortable life. I mean, surely poverty is which is which would be which capitalists would argue would be the antithesis of a capitalist society. We have mass poverty. Well, poverty is is a problem in itself, and and surely that would impact your mental health. Yeah, I think there's uh, there's a lot written about this mm. about the relationship between poverty and mental health. Mm. Some people will argue that it's a two way street. Yeah. If you if you have a if you have significant problems with your mental health, you are going to struggle mm. uh, in the workplace. You're going to struggle to find employment and then you're, you're going to end up in poverty. Yes. Uh, on the other side of the equation, that if you are uh, in a situation of poverty where mm. you are really struggling and under a lot of stress in relation to debt yeah. and, and those kind of stresses, issues with homelessness, yeah. um, that, that also will contribute to your uh, mental ill health. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I accept those points. The issue is really how how do we? I mean, it, it becomes a wider issue if we know that poverty is one of the determinants of health. Mm. We know that we saw that reflected in the pandemic. Yeah. We saw that you know many of the people who had the worst physical and mental health were the people who are poor, mm. um, and this is particularly the case, particularly the case in the developed world, 
um, where there is this huge inequality of wealth, actually. Yeah. So then the, the question really becomes, how is it that you, how do you solve the, and this is a fundamental economic problem, how do you distribute wealth? How do you solve poverty? And this is where uh, Islam has got a, a, a very uh, unique understanding that is unique uh, and uh, contrary to what is in capitalism. So we, we don't accept this trickle-down economics. Mm. So look, all of these issues are linked in various different ways. So yeah. a topic such as mental health is linked to the economic system, mm. no doubt. Mm. Uh, and a topic such as mental health is linked to your purpose in life. Mm. All of these things are linked. And when you have this balanced society we were talking about, mm. the balanced society, it puts the brakes on you. Right. You know, if uh, tomorrow Ahmed is setting up a business in this balanced society, mm. you know, the people in the society around him will notice that actually, well, he's, you know, he's neglecting his parents. Where's the morals here? Mm. He's negle neglecting his community. Mm. And, the, and actually, that will have an impact on him. Whereas today, the, the impact is going on Instagram, going on TikTok and seeing what people have got. Yeah. And that is pushing you to spend more hours in the workplace to accumulate more and more wealth. So I, I think that if one's going to get into the subject of poverty, you've really got to ask, well, the countries of the West, these are the most, wa most wealthy countries on earth. But all the evidence is suggesting they're also the most unhappy. Yeah. Uh, and that's my experience anyway. I've looked after many people who have wealth and it didn't necessarily bring happiness and contentment. Yeah. Um, so uh, Millionaires? Billionaires? Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And what? They, they still feel sad about life. They've got all that money and they still feel a sense no doubt. of discontentment. I mean, no doubt. Really? Uh, I think there's many of those people who, who feel uh, immense vacuum, yeah. uh, immense spiritual vacuum. They don't know their purpose in life. They don't know why they accumulated this money. Yeah. Um, and it's difficult to imagine, I guess. Uh, but definitely there are people who I've come across with considerable wealth yeah. who have been considerably unhappy. Really. Imran, um, Jannah is meant to be the place of peace. It's uh, the place of salam. It's a place where you would have no anxiety and no anguish. And the earth has been described in various evidences as a place of tests. You know, subhanAllah, those Muslims who are, have experienced this earthquake in Turkey and Syria, you know, there is a, a calamity that has impacted them. And, you know, we as Muslims, we tend to say that these are tests from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the way a human being deals with these tests will, uh, will allow them to achieve uh, felicity, achieve greatness in Yawm al-Qiyamah. So is the world, if the world is full of tests, should we really be aiming to be happy in this world? I think uh, we, we have to accept that there are periods of poverty, there mm. are periods of wealth, yeah. there are periods of happiness, there are periods of uh, sadness, uh, there are periods of good health, there are periods of bad health, there are periods of youth, there are periods of uh, being elderly. So this is a this is a challenge uh, that is this is a reality before us. Mm. So we don't believe in a, a paradise in this life. That is not our iman. So mm. we we didn't we we did not accept that the people in this world, all of them, are angels, and we didn't accept we didn't uh, ex it was not our expectation that this existence uh, is a trouble-free, stress-free uh, kind of uh, paradise. Mm. 
because that doesn't make any sense because our ultimate aim is the real paradise yeah mm. and this life is just a prelude to that paradise yes so so yeah i mean we we, we know the the famous hadith of rasulullah sallallahu when he said this this life is a is a prism for the believers um so i think one has to put it in context we are not trying to create uh you know a sad um melancholic life uh in anticipation of eternal happiness in paradise mm. rather we are trying to abide by the system by the ahkam by the sharia uh and take with it whatever allah gives us of happiness and sadness um and in our moments of happiness uh the sharia taught us so for example soon we will we will come to ramadan and we will come to uh, eid al-fitr the in our moments of happiness the sharia taught us that we undertake humanitarian acts uh you know we give zakat al-fitr for example mm. so even in those periods of happiness we do other actions other than celebration mm. um and even in the aspects of sadness uh we we also try and look at the wider picture so and this is not just for the muslim i think we accept that for the human being li- life is a road of challenges yeah. and i think if there are people who are not muslim who are listening to this podcast they need to think about what is it what is the philosophy and what is the system of life that equips you to deal with these challenges in life because uh, the materialistic uh, ideology of capitalism mm. it only really helps you in this life mm. it helps you to make some material progress mm. in this life it doesn't address the afterlife and actually if you if you don't find yourself happy in this life and you have no vision for the akhirah and no belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually you end up living a very empty life which lacks tranquility there is a tendency in your profession to overmedicalize mental illness uh, and traits that you've described to be uh, you know disorders but not necessarily um acute disorders uh, some blame uh, the power of the pharmaceutical industry what are your thoughts on this i think uh, the 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 issue is that uh, i mean we've talked about the overall part that individualism has played and i think that's important here mm. because it it is actually making you feel the problem is the individual mm. um so the individual needs to go and 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 seek help or seek a cure um and this trend of medicalizing illness is not med- medicalizing mental health issues it's not only a trend for mental health uh there's a medicalization of a lot of things of aging for example right. so we see the pharmaceutical industry has focused a lot on and 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 we see huge other industries which have come up beauty industry cosmetic industry aesthetic mm-hmm. medicine industry which is all focused on dealing with aging for mm-hmm. example yeah uh, and it's all from a particular viewpoint on life i guess um so there is overmedicalization and i i think there is a there is um a fear even amongst many psychiatrists uh, of overdiagnosis there's also a fear of underdiagnosis missing people yeah who have very very serious mental illness and making uh, we need to make sure that people with the most serious conditions get treatment mm. but i think there is that risk there um the risk that you try and uh try and focus on individuals too much the pharmaceutical industry of course this is business i mean these are huge corporations and they have to uh 
increase their profits for their shareholders. Mm. So we know that it is in their interests uh, to have overdiagnosis um, and to widen the diagnostic classification. Mm. So it would definitely be in the interests of uh, companies selling antidepressants to drag more and more people into the net of depression, no doubt. Mm. Um, to drag more and more people into the, the diagnosis of ADHD or any other condition, mm. to widen the scope of it, yeah? Um, to say that, you know, maybe somebody who's shopping too much, you know, maybe they've got an obsessive shopping disorder. Mm. Uh, so almost to have this kind of pill for every ill, that is a danger. Um, and I think the issue is that too often, uh, too often we only treat people with drugs. And as will have been clear from what we've talked about today, problems are often societal in mm, nature. Right. And so most of my colleagues who are treating with drugs, they're trying to do good. These are the few weapons they've got in their armory. Mm. So they come across someone who really doesn't know what their purpose is in life, has got poverty, has got a history of trauma, history of abuse, lots and lots of issues going on in life, um, economic problems. And the only thing you're able to do is give them an antidepressant. Mm. Um, which doesn't actually look at the wider issues um, and maybe doesn't focus on, on what the deep-rooted deep issues are. Yeah. So I think really there, there is a, a need for all of those in the field of mental health to look beyond medication. Mm. Uh, medication has a role in particular conditions. It can be a very, very effective treatment when it's used correctly. Mm. Uh, but used incorrectly, it just becomes uh, something completely unnecessary and futile. Now, Dr. Imran, I received an, a number of questions actually on, on Twitter when I sent out a message yesterday to say that uh, I was interviewing you. And um, subhanAllah, you know, it, I received a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of questions asking about particular issues of, of mental illness, but also the general uh, understanding of mental illness. So let me, let me give you these questions. You tell me, you know, you give me your, your, uh, your learned answers. Um, so there's a question here. What role does uh, being shamed or childhood trauma play in mental health problems in, in later life? I mean, it's a massive topic, <laughs> but I mean, it would not come as any surprise. Right. That your early years, your upbringing, you yeah. know, the love, the affection, the environment you are raised in, um, the way you are nurtured, the way you are taught, the way you're educated. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of these things... Uh, are of great importance. And we probably all know of the hadith of Rasulullah you know, which mentions how he used to play with children and you know, how he has picked up children in the prayer. And uh, he, he expressed his surprise, I think, at some of the companions who were surprised at the way he played with children. Hmm. So look, these things are vital. And, and they are huge, huge areas to address. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, I see the outcome, unfortunately. I see the people who have suffered... Uh, abuse, have suffered uh, real uh, trauma, unimaginable for most people. Um, and, and no doubt uh, it, has a, it has a major impact on their lives in later life. They are damaged by it, mm. um, whether that be an inability to trust other people um, or whether that be poor self-esteem. So we know that those early years are very, very formative, mm. very, very important years. Um, and we see people, I mean, I see people who at the age of three are, you know, homeless. Yeah. They tell me their stories. They were homeless at a young age that, you know, their parents have given them alcohol at the age of four. They're smoking cannabis at the age of five. They're abused, yeah. uh, physically abused. Um, and 
mentally abused. So all of those things, really, uh, they have a, a major bearing on, on, on development. Mm. There's a question here, and I'm not sure if, if this is borne out in the statistics, but it's worth asking you. Uh, it claims that more Muslim men suffer from mental health problems than any other demographic. Have you heard of this? I'm not sure of that statistic. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know whether it's saying that Muslim men rather than Muslim women suffer with more depression. Or any... Uh, any other demographic. So it, it seems to imply that, you know, Muslim men are, are more prone to mental illness. Is that? I'm not, I'm not kind of familiar with that research finding. Right. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, if, if I mean, but, the whole issue is this. Mm. When you go to the research literature, yeah. like let's say, take, for example, uh, the pr protective effect of religion on mental health. Yeah. Mm you will find some research which finds no effect at all. Mm. And you'll find some research which finds there's a significant effect. Yeah. So I, I think the issue is, are these studies, are they reliable enough? Right. Are they done with large enough numbers? Mm. Um, and one has to look at all the biases which could be involved in such studies. So I'm not sure. Um, I mean, we know, for example, that Muslim men are overrepresented in the prison population. We know mm. that. There's mm. very clear statistics about that. That's in the UK. I'm, I'm not sure about elsewhere. Mm. Um but Muslim men suffering from more depression, not something that I'm, I'm too familiar with. So I couldn't really, if the questioner is asking for an analysis of why that is, yes. it's difficult to answer yeah. because I'm not necessarily convinced mm. of the finding. Okay, well, let's move on. So, uh, there's another question about, I had a few questions about jinn and shaitan and how that impacts your, uh, how these unseen uh, aspects, which we all believe in, impact the me your mental health. I mean, do you have any, any thoughts on on jinn and shaitan? I mean, this is, again, uh, probably deserves a show <laughs> on its, <laughs> yeah. of its own right. Yes. I mean, it's, you, you get lots of people who have different views on it. And yeah. I mean, it's interesting to see the views of different Muslims uh, and even Muslim psychiatrists. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 it's not something that at all I consider mm. in the treatment okay. uh, of people. So I, I see people with severe mental illness, um, such as schizophrenia, and it's not something I've given a great deal of consideration to. Yeah. Um, and, and generally, amongst uh, the, the scholars of Islam, they differed uh, as to the effect that jinn can have on human behavior. Mm. Uh, I, I tend to take the view that the maximum that jinn can do is whisper, mm. uh, whisper in the, in, the, in, the, in the mind of man, mm. not, control, uh, not control them. Yeah. Um, so actually, the, the main impact of it... Um, the main impact of our understanding here is that we, you know, and this is the part, this is part of dealing with uncertainty mm. because the Muslim has absolute conviction in the existence of jinn. Mm. Um, and I, for one, have never seen a jinn, never sensed their presence, mm. um, and, you know, never come across them. But because what you we live do, in Birmingham. Uh, in Birmingham, you know, I mean, I, I, I spent 10 years working in psychiatry in Small Heath, and yes. one would expect, you know, that there will be a, and there will be a huge population of jinn uh, <laughs> in these areas. Yes. Um, but uh, one didn't find it. But I think, look, what the issue is practically, what is the effect of this on our belief, on our action? Yeah. We seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yes. uh, from any harm that comes to us. Uh, you know, as the, the Quranic du'as, which I mentioned, mm. um, 
and which uh, I mentioned in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, those du'as, we should recite those things. Mm. We should try and be close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm. We shouldn't delve into the unseen. This is the general principle in Islam. Mm. We don't look to delve into the unseen. Mm. It's, about, it's about something of which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us. We have given very little knowledge of it to man. Mm. So it's something we have little knowledge of. So it's not something for us to immediately look at. And about, the, the, yeah. the, the point I would also make is this. Is that the example of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and the Muslims generally in the way in which they dealt with any event mm. that occurred, mm. any calamity, any suffering, uh, any incident which occurred in their lives, was to look not was not to look to the unseen. Yeah. So if they came across you know something which had been stolen or they came across somebody who who was dead, they wouldn't look for. If you come across somebody who's dead, you look for somebody who's living who's killed him. Yeah. You don't look for something unseen. So generally. The belief in the unseen, in one's day-to-day actions, it does not have an effect. What about the role of ruqya? So uh, there is a, a concept of evil eye, which we know from many sahih hadith, which explain that someone who can have a jealousy to the degree that they want to take away your, um, you know, a a a netma, a a, something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you, they want that quality to be taken away from you and maybe transferred to themselves. And so many Muslims proactively uh, practice self-ruqya. You know, they read du'a uh, as a means to prevent uh, that from happening. And would you advise that? Would, is, that a, is that a good course of action for look, most Muslims? Look, generally in our deen, there are two types of treatment. Yeah. There's treatment with the Quran. Yes. And there's treatment with the uh, with the with the known medicines. Mm. Uh you know, so even if somebody had high blood pressure or diabetes, there's nothing wrong with the Quranic treatment. Uh but I would say it should go alongside uh it, when you've got a significant condition, it should go alongside the other treatments yeah. uh which have been discovered by man by you know, scientific discovery. Um so there's nothing wrong we know that there is, uh, you know, that within the Quran, there is shifa, there is healing, there is a cure. Yeah. So absolutely, the person who is ill, uh, as much as they are capable, mm. should try and read as much of Quran as they can. And if there are particular surahs which are mentioned in the hadith as having uh, particular effectiveness, it is good to focus on those things. And it's good also to make dua and to make lots of dhikr. These things ultimately they draw you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah. And the closer you draw to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the more uh, you are under his protection. There's a, a number of questions I received about um, these low-level cases of ADHD, for example, or OCD. And many people nowadays, they use these as an excuse to absolve them from uh, the, the problems that may, that may come out of their own lives. So maybe... They neglect themselves or they neglect others around them. How much can we excuse ourselves for uh, and, and blame these illnesses or these conditions for our uh, lack of actions or for our actions? I think we should be careful that uh, anybody who says they have one of these conditions, that this condition has been diagnosed by somebody with expertise right. and somebody with understanding. You can't self-diagnose ADHD or OCD. Well, I mean, we live in the era of Sheikh Google. I mean, people right. will, you know, I will say to people that, uh, you know, your Googling is not equivalent yeah. to education and knowledge and experience. Right. Um, and and that is, this is not from a position of arrogance. Yeah. This is just something we know in ourselves, even in terms of the deen. Mm. You know, we don't accept uh, that the person who Googles 
and you know it's completely self-taught that such a person is a scholar mm. rather we have you know we put great emphasis on learning and education and a particular methodology of study uh, and and that is very very significant to preserve uh, the deen so look self-diagnosis is very very dangerous i would say uh it's it's not a bad thing to 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 research into one's own symptoms. So I'm not saying to people they shouldn't be aware yeah. or they should be ignorant. Yeah. So yeah. I, I don't think there's anything wrong per se. If you feel like you have a particular condition, one should undertake research, mm. but one should also uh, un- understand that one should consult people of knowledge and expertise to establish whether one has a diagnosis. And do we absolve these people from responsibility if they... It depends of the it depends on the severity of a condition. Right. So somebody could have very very severe ADHD, mm. which means that they are completely unable to concentrate. Yes. Um, but usually one would uh, one would try and treat the condition, mm. and with treatment one would expect. So you may have for the scholars they used to use these terms temporary insanity and permanent insanity. Right. Um, I mean these are not kind of terms which are used in model modern day kind of medical parlance. Mm. But the, the point is that you could have a condition which is treatable and you could have a period for which you... So an individual may have an acute psychosis where they are, you know, really, really unwell, delusional, mm. hallucinating. Yeah. But then with treatment, uh, that period goes and then they, are, they, they become accountable. Mm. But I think we've got to be careful. Look, I mean, there's been some critical articles in the press recently about ADHD. There was one uh, recently... Um, in uh, in the Sunday Times mm. uh, about how this has become a fashionable diagnosis. This is this was the critique, yes. and that many of the things which are which are on these tick list self diagnosis. Do you have trouble waiting in queues or waiting your turn? Yeah. Uh, do you start a project and not finish it? Do you get easily distracted? That a lot of people, you know, particularly students, they'll tick a lot of these boxes. That's me, right? Um, yes. Well, yeah. I mean, this is the issue. People will. People will, but so that's why there needs to be some degree of scrutiny by somebody with expert, expertise to say, well, look, this is beyond the kind of the normal pattern of human behavior. And actually what you have is something pathological, which can be treated, even if we don't quite understand the cause. Mm. We feel that if the symptoms are of, of that severity, they may well be treatable. Uh, there's a question, how do we treat someone who's got a disorder, say a borderline personality disorder? Uh, I suppose the question is, should we appease them or should we be hard to, you know, set boundaries and be very, very, not harsh is probably the wrong word, but be, be firm so that they know how to behave, especially if it's a young person, how to behave appropriately. Like, you know, what is the, what's the balance between empathy and structure? It's a difficult question, mm. and I suspect whoever's asked it is probably finding themselves in a difficult situation. Yes. Because these conditions um, can be very, very difficult. Young people with uh, what is known as uh, emotionally unstable personality disorder, borderline type. Mm. This is a condition, for, the, for those who don't know about it, generally is characterized by low self-esteem, mm. uh, rapid fluctuation of mood. Uh, there can be self-harm, what is known as emotional dysregulation. Um, they can be quite uh, difficult to treat. Usually there's a history of trauma. Mm. Um, And I think uh, a lot of health professionals, a lot of clinicians find these difficult conditions to treat. Mm. Um, 
And really what you're trying to do, in, in the, in, as a clinician, you're trying to build a therapeutic relationship. Right. You're trying to get people to trust you, to be able to talk to you openly, to communicate their distress, to feel comfortable with you. Yeah. And I guess if this is someone in your family, you've got to, you've got to kind of walk that tightrope mm. between, yes, having some boundaries, because boundaries are important as well. We know that. Uh, setting of boundaries can be quite important in people with this condition. But also you've got to keep open the channels of communication. You've got to also, you've got to show empathy as well. So, you know, it's not, it, it's not an either or answer. You've got to try and walk this uh, difficult tightrope between the two. There is a question here about childhood trauma, uh, in particular in the madrasa system, which you may have uh, come across and, and people have very bad, uh, that leads a residual feeling about Islam and, and an impact on someone's commitment to deen. How would you treat or deal with someone who's, you know, who's faced uh, uh, problems at an early age in, in say, the madrasa systems? I guess it depends on how that manifests now, what age they're at now and what kind of symptoms it manifests with now. Right. I mean, if, it, if, it's, if it's not kind of an illness... Hmm. So it's more disillusionment with the religion because that's, you know, that's, that's usually what you hear about. When you hear about victims of uh, child abuse, mm. both, for example, from the Catholic Church or uh, people who have es 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 experienced this in mosques or madrasas, mm. it generally leads to a disillusionment with religion. Mm. So one has to try and maybe try and put that into some context mm. um, in the discussions with someone, but also acknowledging that somebody has been uh, traumatized and damaged, mm. um, that is important to recognize. So one must tread carefully and sympathetically with such a person. Mm. But it, it, it's overall, it's to do with the generalization. Um, so a few rotten apples doesn't necessarily, you know, allow you to cast aspersions on an entire ummah or an entire deen. Mm. So there will be individuals. Um, we don't live, sadly, as I, as I mentioned earlier, this is not a kind of paradise on earth. We don't have angels. Mm. And we even hear, I mean, we even hear stories sometimes of leading kind of uh, Islamic personalities uh, who are being accused of, you know, uh, assaulting people and uh, mistreating uh, sisters, for example, and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think all that can be done is, you know, the hand of support uh, and listening and... Uh, believing their account mm. um, as much uh, as is possible. Mm. Um, and that, that is what one can do. And of course, if they go on to, de to develop a specific condition, yes. like post-traumatic stress disorder or depression, then one would try and treat those things. Um, but of course, you know, we, we in ourselves, we are trying to be models to people around us. And that's important. So hopefully, you know, even, even the, the people sometimes we, we, we meet... Uh, I mean, non-Muslims who have just been fed some stereotypes about Islam. Mm. But obviously, when they meet somebody uh, who practices Islam, you can radically change their opinion. Mm. Uh, we saw even now, I mean, I saw so many, I saw some guys who, you know, supporters of Birmingham Football Club, um, and they went to Qatar for the World Cup. Yes. And they made these vlogs <laughs> of how they were treated as individuals by Muslims. And these are people who said, well, we hadn't really met with Muslims, they hadn't interacted with them. Mm. And they were amazed mm. at the the hospitality, at the kindness, the honesty, and these type of things. So I would hope that those Muslims who have suffered such trauma, mm. if they spend time around Muslims who are sincere and who have taqwa, 
that they will realize that what they suffered was an aberration. Yeah. But on the other hand, the other point we've got to think about is the root cause. Right. We've got to make sure that our madrasas and our, you know, our mosques are strong places where these things are stamped out. How do we deal with, how do we become more resilient when it comes to mental health? I mean, there's a question here about nutrition and mental health, but just on a, on a more broader level, how can we build our capacity to withstand uh, the challenges of life? I think that a lot of people, even outside of uh, the Muslims, are, are writing about this because they face a lot of the challenges. Mm. So the challenges of materialism, for example, mm. the challenges of work-life balance, of burnout, the challenges of having a family life, of having children, mm. um, the challenges of aging um, and children and social media. Um, so there is a lot out there which is quite uh, important. Mm. Uh, so we know that physical health and mental health are very closely linked. Yeah. Um, so the importance of looking after physical health should not be underestimated. Yes. Uh, things like diet, nutrition. Mm. Uh, I was reading in, uh, an interesting study somebody's undertaking at the moment. They're looking at the effects of ketogenic diet on mental health. Right. So we know that things like uh, some of the studies done by neuropsychiatrists in Birmingham, for example, found that ketogenic diets are very helpful in epilepsy mm. and in the treatment of epilepsy. But people are now looking at whether you can actually improve mental health through diet. Uh, and there are a lot of people, uh, I'm, I'm connected with some people who are looking at diet and, uh, and, and mental health. Right. Of course, the other aspects of resilience we've talked about today, uh, we've talked about those concepts of sabr, of tawakkul, of understanding qadar, of rizq and ajal. Um, these things, of course, are very, very important. Uh, to grasping uncertainty and learning to deal with uncertainty. Um, I think there is a lot to be said about the stories of the prophets, the stories of the messengers, yes. their examples, uh, the stories and the struggle of the Sahaba. Uh, may Allah be pleased with them. Uh, there is huge amount of inspiration to be taken about their resilience um, and the way they were tested. So, you know, we, we all know how they came to Rasulullah sallallahu and, and, you know, complained of the torture. Yes. And he and what he did was a kind of, you could argue, a kind of therapy. Because he actually said to them, the people before you, they used to tear away their flesh from their bones uh, with a comb. But you people are in a hurry. Yeah. Um, so what he was saying to them was actually, there are people who suffered more than you. Yes, you are suffering. But there are people who suffered more than you. And actually, that's sometimes a, a technique which is used in therapy um, to make you look at the kind of wider picture that, yes, you are in a bad situation, mm. but you know what? There are people who are even in an even worse situation. Mm. Um, and that, that's something that we, we, we could think about as well. Lastly, Dr. Wahid, um, there's a discussion here on my Twitter feed about feelings. Uh, Western society tends to, uh, tends to accept especially of young people, when they have feelings about mental illness or they have feelings about, you know, uh, it could be gender dysmorphia or whatever it may be. But, you know, they rely a lot on how people feel, even if those feelings are inappropriate or incorrect. Um, I'm, not, I'm trying to sort of wind this into a question, but do you get my, the problem? There is a, there's a great emphasis on, on validating the feelings that people may have um what what's your what's your take on on that i mean my take is ultimately you know 
the feelings, the sensations, the desires, the drives, all of these things are a part of the human experience. They're part of the, the creation. People mm -hmm. have been uh, instilled with particular feelings, with particular drives. Mm -hmm. But the, the, uh, the fundamental question to be asked is, what is the system to organize all of these feelings? Yes. Uh, what is the system to, uh, you know, if, if, I, if I have this great desire to be rich, uh, you know, and, and this is the thing which drives me. What puts the brakes on? Mm. What's the system? How's this policed? Uh, or are we going to have a society where, you know, it's each, every person eats the other person mm -hmm. uh, and every person, their feelings are just not policed. And, you know, you end up with a chaotic uh, society of animals and not human beings. Yeah. And this is a reality. The reality of a society which is not policed uh, by the Islamic system and the Islamic morals and the Islamic rules and the ahkam, you end up deteriorating mm. into a jungle. Yes. Uh, so we must uh, prevent against that. Yeah. I think we've covered a lot here today, uh, Imran. And Jazakallah um, khair, I think we've, uh, we've uh, addressed uh, a number of issues here. I think in future, maybe we could have a show to answer many more i mean i've received so many specific questions and and it's probably i probably haven't done justice to to so many of them but i think it would be great to have a show where we can go through some of these questions in a lot more detail uh but jazakallah khair thank you for your time today barakallah and uh thanks for having me please remember to subscribe to our social media and youtube channels and head over to our website thinkingmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.